Hey, Barry, what do you think about Justin Trudeau's beard? Well, in my home, there's a little dissension in the ranks. Uh, Jane, who uh, uh, doesn't uh, like it one iota uh, and kind of wishes he was uh, clean-shaven, I like beards. Uh, I wear one, obviously, have done ever since I went to the Arctic many years ago, and it seemed a good place to grow one. Uh, I I think it favors uh, our present prime minister. Uh, I'm reminded of some of the people that have been important to me as a book publisher. Uh, who were bearded, uh, and though I didn't know him, I think one of the finest beards ever was uh, Ernest Hemingway's beard. He always looked so handsome. So uh, good for Mr. Trudeau. I, I, I'm in favor of his beard, and I hope we see more of it. Okay. It's just not a cover-up then. <laughs> Very good. You are listening to episode 9 of In Grey Highlands This Week, the supersized episode. Oh, today in Studio A, I have uh, Barry Penhale with me, who's sitting in for Paul McQueen, who's off on assignment. He's had a very busy week in his other jobs, farming and politics. And so I've asked... uh, Barry Penhill to join us today. And actually, Barry Penhill is the prime mover and shaker in Studio A. And it's really nice of him to come out from behind the woodwork and 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 join with me today. And uh, Barry's going to be bringing forward his new flagship series, uh, which is called There is Something I've Been Meaning to Tell You. So, Barry, thanks for joining me today. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, we're fellow board members of the South Grey Museum, so I sit opposite you often, but not with microphones. Um, and uh, it's also a great honor to sit in for our esteemed mayor and warden. Uh, I know that uh, I've been told by the producer that sometimes you have a little bit of humorous banter at the beginning. Uh, I'm not uh, necessarily an expert on farm humor, uh, but Stuart, if I may, I'm reminded of the similarities in different parts of uh, rural Ontario. And many years ago, a friend and a uh, colleague of mine who was a photographer and a reporter in his part of Ontario went out to interview an old gentleman who uh, uh, was turning perhaps 90 or even older, and somebody thought he should be written up and photographed. And my friend came back and told me the humorous story. He met this gentleman, found like most most rural citizens, he really took his politics very sim- you know, very seriously. And of course, you have been an elected official, and you know what that's all about. But he really was serious about politics, particularly uh, being apparently a very uh, staunch conservative. And he told my friend, he said, you know, Bill, he said, I, I'm an ardent fisherman as well as being big on politics. And he said, I only once ever voted liberal, and I didn't catch a pickerel all that year. <laughs> so so I, I sometimes think about Grey Highlands and, and our rural nature, and then I realize how much we have in common with other rural parts of Ontario, and I imagine we have some people who probably could uh, repeat that story along oh, some that was, lines. That's a great, uh, great uh, uh, introduction to you and uh, uh, to our audience, okay, who have never probably had Barry Penhill uh, you know, 
evolve with some of these stories that uh, you're full of. And that's it's great today that you're you're going to join me. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the the rundown that's happening in our municipality on this um, on this show. So, one thing that uh, we wanted to uh, talk about in our in our topics this week is uh, I did an interview with uh, Michelle Harris. You've met Michelle, I have indeed. Yeah, Michelle Harris is the uh, is the director of. Uh, uh, economic development and tourism. I had a great interview with, with uh, her and she's, uh, you know, brought forward the strategic plan and now she's bringing forward the next steps to follow. And it's a bit of a teaser in that sense uh, because she hasn't really brought to council the next steps. So we're just interviewing uh, Michelle on that particular subject. Well, you know, one of the uh, things that I can say is that, uh, uh, I came across some of Michelle's own past accomplishments when I was reading a commemorative magazine right. uh, that dealt with the Headwaters region. Yes. Uh, and as you know, uh, they uh, declared that particular region, uh, Halton and you know right. Dufferin and Caledon and that region, as Headwaters. Uh, and it was actually uh, good naming, as it's turned out. Uh, and uh, they recently were celebrating an anniversary. Uh, but one of the people who wrote for this commemorative magazine was Michelle Harris, but she had played a very major part, I discovered, uh, in the growth of Headwaters as a tourism destination. Absolutely. Uh, and I was very, very impressed with what she did, and I'm sure she was asked, uh, uh, among others, uh, to recall uh, the growth uh, of that uh, uh, region uh, under that name. Uh, my concern here uh, when it comes to economic development, and I see tourism as very much a part of right. that, is that it seems to me uh, when I uh, acquired property with my wife uh, 23 years ago now, uh, that uh, I began to realize, and I've encountered it so many times, that what we're really lacking is accommodation. You know, we have wonderful scenery, uh, we have annual attractions, and events such as the fling and other right. things so we can attract people here and, and the problem is can we keep them here because other than a number of very fine b&bs uh, we just don't have you know big places of accommodation well thanks for that uh, little bit of background on on what you see as as being a need and i think everybody recognizes that so one of the one of the things that the municipality has done this year is to is create a campground bylaw which it never had before and it's been recognized for years that we do need campgrounds but first of all you have to have the bylaw in place because if somebody wants to purchase five acres to build which is the minimum size for a campground you really need to they need to know that there's something in place so they're working on it. Michelle's working on it. So we're going to listen uh, on that uh, with when I interview Michelle. Well, I, I think her uh, her presence in our municipality is going to be felt, I'm sure. Uh, she really brings a wonderful background that I alluded to earlier. And we look forward to great things from Michelle Harris. And uh, uh, it will all be beneficial, I would like to think, to Gray Highlands. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And I just want to say now, Barry, that... Uh, you are uh, a champion of, uh, of culture in, in our community. And uh, one of the things that uh, you bring to the South Gray Museum through your association with the Friends Group is a lot of great speakers. You want to take a little bit of a time to give us a bit of a rundown on some of the things that are going to be happening in 2020? 
Well, I do indeed welcome that opportunity because we're uh, getting the speaker series underway again uh, in April uh, and uh, uh, on April the 22nd, actually, at the South Gray Museum. That's a Wednesday evening. People know, I think, who come out regularly that right. we stay with Wednesdays. And uh, our guest speaker is somebody many outdoor-minded people have requested, and that is the outdoor adventurer and noted canoeist Hap Wilson. So we have eight months, uh, April to November, uh, some outstanding people coming, uh, opening with HAP. Uh, and because, again, uh, we try to meet the interests of people, it's an eclectic group that are coming to speak to us. Uh, and one man coming back for uh, quite a number of years in a row now is the noted filmmaker, John McGreevy. Right. And once more, he's bringing a wonderful film and will introduce it and explain what goes into film making and be there to answer the questions of the audience. We also, of course, are very much involved uh, in the annual recognition of Agnes McPhail. Right, and, that's taking uh, place when? March 22nd. Okay. And uh, it will you know, take uh, very much the same format. Uh, we have in recent years realized that in addition to Agnes McPhail, there have been so many other outstanding Gray County ladies. Right. Uh, and uh, thanks to uh, local people, we've been recognizing some of the people right. that deserve never to be forgotten. We'll do so again this year. Okay. And then uh, we have the Canada Day breakfast. Right. And that's uh, going to be, of course, on Canada today, July the 1st. Gluten-free uh, waffles. Gluten-free waffles, lots of maple syrup, yep. uh, which I control. And whipped cream. And <laughs> whipped cream and, and all strawberries. the Strawberries, a great, uh, great event. I just hope that our illustrious mayor gets there early because I felt so badly that here was our leading elected official who arrived one year and all we could offer him was a coffee. But we try to do better. All right, we better save some in the back room. <laughs> Studio A, I want to I want to welcome Michelle Harris, the director of economic development and tourism in Grey Highlands. Michelle, uh, you've been in the job now since uh, what 2007, middle of the year, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, been in it just under 18 months now. Well, not everybody knows you, so I want you to take a little bit of time, all right, and give us a little bit of background on Michelle Harris and what makes her tick. So I've had the pleasure of living in the Beaver Valley area for nine years now. Um, prior to living here, um, I came to the town of Erin via Toronto. Um, my work was in the Caledon Dufferin area most recently. Um, I worked for Headwaters Tourism. I was the CEO there. Um, and the Beaver Valley, when we moved here, it was my sanctuary. I had a fairly high profile job there, was known publicly, and I came here to retreat. The reason we moved here is because we loved everything about it. As suburbia started to encroach and move up from Brampton towards Erin, we knew we wanted to migrate a little bit further. And when we started driving up to this area, the spectacular valleys and the water and the sense of community really was what captured our attention. And so we found our little piece of heaven here. Um, a number of years ago, um, 
I was approached by the then CAO of um, the municipality two years ago, who I had knew, known from a previous life. He wanted to know what it would take to get me to come perhaps work with the municipality. At that point, the municipality hadn't um, invested in economic development, but they had undertaken a study which was the start of the conversation so when the opportunity came I had the opportunity to apply for the job and got the job and for me the best thing about all of the work I've done over the last 15 years is helping to build community and this is my home now and I spend a lot of time 10 years building community down in Caledon, Dufferin and Erin area and I thought maybe it's an opportunity for me to maybe give back to the place I call home. And I love this place and I love the people. And so I get to every single day work with community and bring whatever level of skill I have to try to influence the future and work with our community members to build the community we all dream that we want to have moving forward. And I think part of that is not just about building for the future, but also respecting where we came from. It's not our idea to impose ideas, but to understand that this area was built on from strong people who had the same passion for community that we all do. And how do we leverage that? But also, how do we build so that in 25, 50, 100 years from now, Grey Highlands continues to be vibrant and sustainable and gives people who call this place home an opportunity to live a vital life here. And that's why I'm here. Well, congratulations for, for let's say, bringing that forward because not everybody knows, you know, that in depth that Michelle Harris is very insightful because A, she's had a lot of experience and B, because she lives here. Okay. And you don't want to mess up where you live. No, that's exactly right. It's, it matters. Home matters, place matters. And I think as the more people I meet here, um, the more I realize we are all equally as passionate about this place we call home and we're going to build this together and make sure that the future that is put upon us, because it will be, is the future we want to help create. So like yourself, uh, I was a transplant from a, another another uh, era or another area, and uh, but I came up here because I adopted the area, all right? And uh, I believe that um, more and more people are adopting this area. I think they're being uh, becoming aware of what's, you know, of the of the the true gem that we have that we exist and we don't want to mess it up, all right? We don't want to move Brampton up, up to Grey Highlands, all right? Uh, so we have to be careful how we evolve, all right? And, you know, some people get a little little scary, you know, when you, do we need a Tim Hortons? Uh, do we need, you know, all those things? So we have to be careful how we evolve and, and make sure that we do things, you know, properly. Now, properly, that's, you know, that's, that's up to you and, 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 uh, and your team. So I know that uh, you brought forward uh, just at the latter part of the, the year in 2019, a new uh, strategic plan for 2000 and was it 19 and, and 23, a five-year strategy, right? Yes. Yeah. So 2019, it was it was meant to go one year past the next term of council so that the new council could come on and have a boilerplate, have some time to put their next evolution of the strategic plan into place. Um, Our department was involved in that. Um, Council led this. Um, 
over the course of last year, we had numerous public meetings, um, got all kinds of public feedback solicited online. And that 2019 to 2023 strategic plan, I think is pretty forward thinking. I think it is respectful of the intrinsic values of this community. And it will be our guidepost and everything that we do as staff. And um, when we report to council and take our direction from council, that strategic plan is going to guide us in our thinking and how we move forward. It sets our priorities. Um, and it's interesting when you look at the five pillars that have been identified. I think the words within that considerate communities, vibrant economies, healthy lifestyle, when you look at those words, they mean something and they were very intentional and they were meant to capture the feelings of the community who fed those priorities. So we have the privilege of implementing it under council's direction. But at the end of the day, I would like to think that it's the community who really built that strategic plan. Okay, I know you spent a lot of time in in uh, downtown Markdale this summer, in that very uh, hot air, un, <laughs> no air conditioned office. Uh, you and uh, your new assistant, uh, um, Kristen House. Yep. Right from from uh, Newfoundland. Come, come was, from away. Yeah. Yeah. Come from away. Night and very nice lady. But anyhow, I know you had uh, you published a whole bunch of uh, information. People you know, put uh, names and in, in information in bags and you've summarized it all. And I'm sure that was a bit of an input into your into your plan and how I'm, I'm not sure everybody it, it expected that feedback, but uh, if they can see what they said and, and I'm sure that somehow if they reach into the strategic plan, they'll find, uh, um, you know, uh, there may be their thoughts uh not necessarily laid out, but the idea of how their thoughts might be able to be looked at. And I'm hoping they do. So when we had the opportunity to be in the storefront location last summer for our reimagine undertaking, um, it was powerful, the feedback we got. It was an opportunity for us to have a street front presence in the municipality. It launched our philosophy, philosophy around community conversation and the one thing we heard when we were at that street is, is this information going to get back to council? Is this going to be listened to? And I think um, our goal as staff was to make sure that this information was pulled together and that people had an opportunity to hear and know that they were heard. Um, what is interesting about that is, um, firstly, that most of the people who came in, and I would suspect we engaged with over 500 people during the course of that summer, probably spoke to each of those people for a minimum of 10 minutes each. Um, those weren't your normal characters who necessarily come to public meetings or council meetings. These were people who may have never come into town hall before, but had important things to say. And um Interestingly enough, the priorities they brought forward and the things that they felt were important for them were not that different from what we had been hearing from other groups and citizens, but it reinforced some key themes for us. So they actually wrote it down and, and put it in the little paper bag. They and, did. And that and was a commitment uh, that they made and also that you were able to receive that They did. And, and so there were some people we'd say to them, you know what? 
You don't need to tell us now if you wake up in the middle of the night and you have something pops into your head, come back. And we had people who came multiple times for people who didn't write their comments. We recorded their notes anonymously. Like we, oh, okay. we made, we took note of every person who came in there. And what for us in 2020, you will see in um, the strategic plan, community engagement is important. And for our department as community and economic development, we're going to continue that reimagine philosophy. And instead of having a storefront in Markdale, over the course of this year, we're going to go out more actively to community groups into each of the communities to have those same conversations and ha- listen to people. Does that and mean you're going to have town halls? Or? No, we're going to do it very casually. We might show up at a uh, okay, fall so. fair. We might be invited to a community meeting and say, while we're here, it's the idea of coffee table conversations. Sometimes when it's more formalized, people don't feel as empowered. The the people that are generally kind of shy, they don't come out. uh, And but if you can get them in that their own environment, they're more likely to talk. Go where they are as opposed to asking them to come out. So you're going to do that later on this summer? We're going to do it throughout the whole year. So we're actually starting to look at where are we going to show up and we're going to have our little brown reimagined paper bags and our notes and we'll just it'll be an an evolutionary process it's not you know we've done it three times and it's done it's part of our overriding philosophy on how we're we're having conversations with the community so you developed five pillars yep and uh, we won't review them but they're they're coming up one pillar at a time i think on the on the on the facebook page yes and so people can read what each one of those are and it's also on the municipal website Mm -hmm. as to what they are but behind every strategic plan is the next plan and that's kind of like what you would call the the menu yep right or the blueprint or whatever you want to call it so i know uh you've been working on that are when are you ready to sort of reveal uh that and and what would what will it entail So for our economic and community development department, which includes the museum, which includes um, facilities, which includes um, all our facilities, economic development, tourism, we have our own little work plan and our team met at the beginning of January and put together our priority list to determine how we're going to help do our part to fulfill the objectives of the municipal municipalities strategic plan so we've got that our team just reviewed it Um, we started with our own vision and our own mission for our department because at the end of the day we need to be pretty solid in what we want to do and I think our mission for economic and community development when we look at it every day we facilitate partnerships with both internal and external stakeholders. In some ways, we're the matchmaker. We work with the community groups. We say, oh, we know a guy. Oh, we've done this. And as we sit there, and we had a a team meeting today, as we talk about our facilities and our museum and the work Krista does with our community groups, you think, well, they're not necessarily intersecting. Everything we do intersects with each other. So as Robert at the museum is thinking of programming, we're thinking about, oh, well, this community group might benefit from that or might want to take part in that. So we're really trying to engage community in a variety of ways. And we have our own priorities. We've got my job is to look at how we're attracting business and retaining business. But 
a good quality of life is critical to making sure that businesses want to locate and stay here. And that means our community groups and our residents need to feel value in this place they call home. So it was interesting when um, when I was first hired, I was hired to do economic development and tourism and tourism is really a part of economic development and the community development side didn't fall to me and we've since done a restructuring and somebody says well I don't know if that really goes and I argue that community development and economic development are the two sides of the same coin you can't have one without the other I agree with you so so looking at this holistically and, and, you know, as we sit as a team in our little work group and we say, we're trying to look at broadly, how do all these pieces fit? And uh, it's funny, I, I did say when we were doing our budget presentations and our request for budget this year, I got to do my little overview for a department and I took a bag full of puzzle pieces and I said, okay, so this is what our department, because it's a new department, this is sort of what we were given and we didn't know what we were doing and we didn't know, nobody gave us the box with the picture on the front of the puzzle box and we just had all of these disparate parts. How do they all connect? And I think... 2019 was a year for us to sort of understand the complexity of the municipality, all of the parts. And I think this year, our role is how do we facilitate the coming together to support the shared vision that is outlined in the municipality's strategic plan? That's great. So we can look forward to some information coming forward uh, to new to a new council, a next council meeting or whatever. Yes. Yeah, so one of the- to roll it out so that you're ready to maybe implement this and get the blueprint, you might say, approved yep. for by uh, by the end of January, do you think? Or uh, probably, early? probably be February. And what we are doing is trying to now that we've got this understanding to feed this information so everybody understands the work we're trying to do. Are we going to get it right all the time? No, but I think there is an integrity and an intent from council. Everybody really knows where we want to go, where what it looks like. I think we've had enough community input to understand broadly speaking what we all value and and now we've got to put the build the building blocks for it so well you bring new confidence to the whole economic development concept we've talked about it for years uh and you know finally i think you you might say that you're in charge and actually i can see a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel now because we did a lot of talking we did a lot of planning but we did very little in executing so i think uh, from my perspective uh uh, as a resident up here 20 years, uh, you know, I'm, and also being a small business person catering to the tourism, I look forward, you know, essentially to new things happening in our community to make sure that people come up here. Um, just in spite of itself, uh, Eugenia, where I do have a store, continues to expand in the whole area. And I also notice a lot of people are making uh, Grey Highlands their home. And with the high speed that is available, and I know you're working on to get more high speed available, uh, they can telecommute a lot. Uh, I know a lot of people have jobs where they can, uh, let's say, work at home three days a week and go in on Mondays and Fridays. And so there are a lot, I see a lot of that happening. And I see a lot of professional people taking that on. So I think we're going to build that and, and hopefully take advantage of a lot of the... Uh, the new people that are coming into our community and, and tap into them and not frustrate them yeah. because uh, both you and I have been 
at the other end uh, where we've been newbies and uh, and when I was first came up here you know 20 years ago it was a little bit more difficult it was as it's like uh, you know going into a foreign country but uh, yep right it's I, I it's I think the energy and the excitement about where the municipality is headed is palpable. I, I, you know, I call me naive. I tend to be the optimist. My nickname used to be Mary Poppins because I always think the glass is half full. But I just see a renewed energy um, around what's happening in Grey Highlands and. All you have to do is drive up Highway 10 and start to see these pockets of development. And I don't want to get into what's good and what's bad. Should we have this? Should we have that? The fact, though, that there is confidence in Grey Highlands and building and the hospital and the schools are coming can't help but be a good thing for our municipality. And I think our role is how do we embrace and capitalize on this so that we can build that vibrant community that we all want. And, you know, the philosophy we take is that we're in this for the long game. It's not all going to be quick wins. It's good. We, but if we all agree that the steps we're taking to that shared vision, that we keep building those steps without having to tear down, then I think we're on the right path. And and as long as we're not deviating and and doing these, I, I think if we're respectful of what we all value, I think we're moving in the right direction. Well, I think we are too. And and as you say, it maybe it takes five years to bring something forward and you're bringing it forward in two and a half years, okay? So <laughs> um, I think that, uh, I think you're ready for the next step. And I encourage you to continue. And and uh, I just want to say thank you for coming today. And, and we're just sort of putting our our. Our, our toe in the in in the water but uh, and it is warm so you can we will we'll plunge into it as as we move forward and we'll look forward uh, hopefully to have you back when you can start to give us the actually the information and the steps that you're coming forward so i want to i want to welcome you and thank you for coming to studio a today my pleasure thanks so much for having me So, Barry, another thing that we're going to be bringing forward today is Jeff Bose, our famous uh, uh, contractor and actor and and, uh, and and star. He's doing an interview uh, this week with uh, Daryl uh, Markowitz, who's the Worm Forge, and all about the uh, you know the exploring the the iron ore and things in, in uh, for the Vikings. Okay, so last time he was at at our South Korea Museum, he drew a big crowd. So He did, and it was unexpected that he be there. And unfortunately, as wonderful as you've been with your attendance through the years since the speaker series started, that was one night that you were not there, right. and you missed, I think, a good one. I do uh, We had a, a wonderful young woman down from Owen Sound who's returned home from Britain, who is an authority on the Vikings. Uh, and she took it in stride when suddenly coming through the door was a gentleman that uh, you've just named who uh, was a blacksmith, is a blacksmith and a very active one, and they had a great deal in common. Uh, she was so pleased to have him there. She was happy to share her stage with him, uh, and we learned a great deal that evening about the work that he does uh, and the replicas that he's capable of making that apparently satisfy the 
experts who are curators often at museums looking for a certain So he was quality. a walk-on that night? Yes, he was a walk-on that night. Okay, that's but, great. But he, it's uh, great he, that she adapted. He, he brought his uh, blacksmith apron, and he uh, brought some tools, and he put up hastily a little display. Oh, and, great. Uh, so it was a bonus. Great. What do you got for us this week on the cultural segment of our In Grey Highlands this week? Well, Happy New Year, Stuart. Um I am constantly amazed at the number of artisans who live in this area. And uh, and this week I had a chat with Daryl Markowitz, who runs the Wareham Forge. Now, this guy is a Viking sword expert. That's putting it in really generic terms. He has been a blacksmith since the 70s and, uh, you know, did very well in those days of um, crafts fairs and things that seem to have gone the way of the dodo now. Anyway, at his forge, he has been uh, working on creating the type of ore that was used by the Vikings in uh, northern Newfoundland. And he still is working on just finding the components that made that ore that they used uh, in the Viking era. Um, because, of course, once they got to the site, uh, the the smelting, the whatever they, they did, was all made of clay and wood, so it's rotted away. They had no idea how to get the, get the ore from uh, the crumbly substance that it is and into a kiln that they had to make out of clay and bellows that they had to make. They didn't know how big to make them, how, right. how anything. And uh, he has been slowly working at recreating this, this metal. Sounds very interesting. He's a fascinating guy. And if you're really interested, he uh, has courses that you can take at his forge, the, uh, the Wareham Forge. I'm talking with Daryl Markowitz, the owner of the Wareham Forge. Now, Daryl's an amazing guy. He's been uh, using traditional blacksmithing techniques to produce items of well, enduring quality and of uh, dubious quality. That is to say, he's been up to, uh, what is it called, Daryl? The uh... Uh, Las National Historic Site of Canada. Right. And Parks Canada asked you to go up there and try and replicate the swords or the the metallurgy of the original Vikings from that settlement? Is that yeah, right? My uh, connection with uh, Lance Meadows and, and Parks Canada goes back a fair way. Um, again, for people who are longtime residents up here, they may remember a medieval festival in Orangeville, Ontario in the early 1990s. And I had originally been contacted about um, how to put together a medieval festival, a community festival, because of my experience in living history museums. And uh, I convinced them to uh, allow us to do a presentation there that would um, replicate the earliest days of the Scandinavians in North America before they got the buildings constructed. So we had tents and a total of about 150 replica objects. And, uh, that you had made? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, and, and, Which, my, and what would they be, like swords, well, spirits? It, it, well, literally everything you can imagine from spoons right to accurate clothing, um, uh, a little bit of weapon. We really downplayed that. We really uh, pushed domestic and tools. 
So, you know, we had uh. cooking pots and tripods and, and uh, all the tableware you'd need, um, uh, all the personal accessories, belt pouches and little knives and all the rest of that stuff. Um, my wife at the time, Vandy Simpson, did the domestic side of it. And um, she is particularly interested in historical cooking. And then she's a textile artist. So um, you're telling me that um, their utensils were made of iron? Well, they're made of a large number of different materials. And if you really wanted to pick one major material, it would be wood. Yeah, that's what um, I would have thought. Making, yeah. making iron itself from, from raw material is a difficult process. So um, metal tools, although the Norse were extremely good metal workers, um, um, tended to be higher status objects. And uh, um, a nice comparison for, for the audience would be um, a thousand years ago, the amount of metal in a family that you would consider your own was about two kilos worth. Mm-hmm. That's enough for a, an axe and a knife. I see. Okay. Um, today, how much metal you have is measured in multiple tons Think oh, of the weight of your car. Indeed, yeah. You know, so the, yeah. a huge, big change, and this this happens in the later industrial area. Yeah, indeed. But, but although metal is very, very important for tool making, all the cutting edges, of course, and then of course anything that's going to be related to fire has to be made of iron as well. Yeah. Um, you know, the main thing you would say if you walk through camp would be leather and wood. Right. That's a two piece yeah. material. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I want to go back, Daryl. It's such a, a fascinating metier that you've involved yourself in how did you get started in it was this a childhood fascination or indirectly because i got interested in the viking age when i was a kid uh seeing on late night tv because this would have been the early 60s um there was an old film called the vikings that had uh, kirk douglas and tony curtis in it yes and ernest borgnine and uh i was just fascinated with that that image I see. Of, of a pastime. Um, and when I got in college, I stumbled into a medieval recreation society called the Society for Creative Anachronism. And they were having a tournament at U of T. And I was doing a photo shoot. I was a student at Ontario College of Art at the time. Okay. And um, oh, all of a sudden, then I could, I could do medieval history and pretend I was a person from the past. This was this would be a dress up, yeah, one of yeah. those events. That, yeah, and, uh, uh, so so one of the activities is fighting, broadsword and shield. Right, you need armor. Not exactly what you can go down to Spark Check and buy off the shelf. So exactly. we we had to learn to make all this stuff, and um, because of that interest, then I took a, a what was a metal sculptures course at Ontario College of Art in one of my later years. I see. Okay. This all comes together, okay? So this is how the fascination began. This is all other stories. Sorry. So the instructor I had at the time, who I actually don't consider a very good instructor, um, I never learned how to use a torch to weld properly. Uh And one day I just got completely frustrated with the thing I was trying to do, and I picked up a ball-peen hammer and proceeded to smash it to bits. About five minutes into that process, I said, oh, well, hey, this is kind of cool. And then I took a fresh bar and heated it up with a torch, and, and away I went. Okay. And, and that's really how I got started in blacksmithing. That was the first smithing I did. And this is without a, without a forge. Without a this forge. This is just yep. Uh, yep. an acetylene torch on it. And it turned out an Ontario College of Art had an old gas forge that nobody had used for decades, hidden in the back of the, the casting room. And I dug the thing out and beat up old anvil. And um, I proceeded to try to figure out how to do this stuff. 
Right. Now, depending on how f- far back your uh, listeners' memories go, um, when we're talking here about the late 1970s, by then the blacksmiths were gone. Yes. So even up around this neighborhood, I think the last guy that was actually functioning as a, in a blacksmith shop would have been maybe the late 60s. And and that uh, I've, heard, t- I've heard stories of a guy running on the corner in Dundalk, uh, 60, 65, 66. Okay, so the last real guy pounding on an anvil closed up shop around 1960 sometime. Yeah, as far as I know, and I'll, wow. I'll be happy to be corrected. Of course, yeah, yeah. my memory in this neighborhood only goes back to 89. Right. So I could be wrong. Right. Um, but So you were, at, you were at OCA. Yeah. And... How did this morph into a career? Well, I got uh, I got asked to to not return to the sculpture department. I got a continual pass, continued pass if I didn't didn't return to the department. And the reason for the request not to um, return? Well, and uh, there's a logic here. I yes. wasn't making art. You know, and you know Art, he's a welder in Mississauga. And if you could weld two things together that never welded together back in those days, that's a heyday of experimental arts. Yes. Yeah, you know, if you remember that. Um, if you did practical work, yet nobody was interested. And I actually uh, dropped out of, technically dropped out of OCA uh, about three months before the, my final fourth year because I got a job at Black Creek Pioneer Village. And, what uh, did you do there? Well, uh, I spent uh, some of my time chopping wood. I got good at that. And I spent two days a week in the blacksmith shop and two days a week in the gunsmith shop. Okay. Now, were there mentors there in the blacksmith uh, shop? Or? I will say that Dave Harris, who was the gunsmith at the time, uh, certainly uh, we were very rarely in the same place at the same time because I was in there in his days off. But he would leave me work to do. And uh-huh. I learned a lot. It was fitting and polishing and grunt work and stuff. But I learned a lot about um, using hand tools. Right. Um, in the blacksmith shop, not so much. And there was a crotchety old guy who was a smith there, and he wouldn't tell you a damn thing. And um, But I was um, I learned how to communicate effectively. And I was working in front of the public every day, so I learned how to demonstrate. And um, as long as I was making objects that were suitable to the time period, even if they were simple ones, toasting forks and fireplace pokers and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, it gave me a chance to build up my speed and my control, you know, which is really, really important. Well, yes. So, now, you this is you are literally pounding an anvil. Yep. Uh, okay. So there's a lot of endurance involved, too, I would imagine. Well, the, your uh, listeners can't see me. If they went to the website, they might be able to find a, a photograph. You, I'm, I'm not Hulk Hogan. You ain't no Ar- Arnie Schwarzenegger. No, no at for all. Sure. And, and but we're not calling you a bone rack or anything well, like my, that. Well, uh, hey, I've been 155 pounds soaking wet my entire okay. life. All right. Um, but the truth of it is, as anyone who works with tools would certainly tell you, there's efficient and inefficient ways to use tools. Mm-hmm. And the key for effective blacksmithing work is not power, it's control. Doesn't matter how hard you hit if you miss. Right? Right. And uh, my partner, uh, Kelly Proven Smith, who is also uh, a new learning blacksmith, is four foot ten. And she does this work. Oh, excellent. So it's about proper use of the tools. I you see. Know, like, as with so many other things. Yeah, you had mentioned uh, before we came onto the air that uh, a solid bar of, of metal turns into a sword blade, but nothing is lost. So that's where you're uh, talking about not power, but control. So the key for people uh, listening to this is consider the fact that every time you've seen a blacksmith work, 
the bar is glowing hot. Yes. And the, uh, the hotter it is, the brighter that color is. So working in subdued lighting, the Smiths can accurately tell the color by, by looking at the, t- uh, of the temperature, by looking at the color. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, if a bar of iron material gets yeah, more or less the same color as a stop sign. Yes. And people can imagine that. Um, it physically changed structure and it goes from technically what we would call a rigid solid into a plastic. And, and as long as it's got that color, the atoms literally move on each other. Now, you've got so, to use a little force to get it to move. Indeed. But, but you don't damage the material by changing its profile, its shape, as long as it's hot. Parks Canada called you up to go to uh, northern Newfoundland, where they were going to try and emulate uh, the iron ore which that was used by the Vikings there in Newfoundland. At the time, am I have I got that yeah, story yeah, right? The, the first iron that was ever made in North America was done by the Scandinavians, Leif Erikson and his bunch, right? Sometime around the year one thousand, um, the First Nations people had just started to do some work with copper, but they hadn't proceeded to um, casting copper or working with bronze, and right. they certainly, outside of one really weird example that we may get to, um, had not not worked with iron. Hmm. Um, so that was one of the big keys in that archaeology, that that was a European and not a First Nations site. Because yes. a turf building yes. is a turf building, and the First Nations people use turf to make houses too. I mean, you, right. you know, there's nothing definitive there. Um, so the presence of iron keyed this. So we had, was it the, the park established then? Did they indeed have uh, structures built when you went there to work a forge? Yeah, the uh, original archaeology is uh, in the mid uh, to late 1960s. Uh, the dig was opened up again um, by Dr. Brigada Wallace, who's a close friend and mentor of mine, um, around 74, 75. Right. And um, the... Uh, turf structure that people would have seen uh, on TV mm. um, was put in in 82, I believe. And okay. um, I mentioned the festival we'd done in Orangeville. I arrogantly just sent Parks Canada stuff. We did this cool thing. Isn't it great? And they turned around and they hired me to put on a two-week demonstration of living history for the Viking Age. I see. Before then, they had um, uh, uniformed uh, guides um, delivering information about the archaeology and about the geology and, and the natural world there. Um, but they didn't have anybody actually in Viking clothes doing, doing Viking stuff. Right. At the site. So and off you went. Off we went. We went up there for two weeks, a group of four of us. And um, What did you take? Did you take your own gear? No, I or? had about 175 replica objects. Um, not counting the clothes uh-huh. for the four of us. And again, it included tools and domestic stuff. Um, we did a little bit of blacksmithing work there because, again, that's part of the archaeology there. Right. Um, making iron is a whole different problem. Um, and uh, we did some woodwork and uh, certainly textiles, which is also indicated as, right. as something that went right. on there at the site. I've always been interested in um, uh, how technology develops and, and what we know and what we've lost. Right. And there sometimes can be benefits to doing things in, uh, shall we say, a traditional way. Yes. Um, anyone who's listening who's a wood, uh, does woodworking seriously, may have a few old Victorian chisels, which are a piece of sliver of hard, hard, hard steel on a wrought iron ba- uh, body. Yeah. And you can crank on the thing and you won't break it. But on the other hand, it stays sharp for as long as it stays long. A modern alloy won't do that. 
But you yes. have to know how to work with those materials, right? Right. Um, so these all, uh, there can be a quality difference right. w- with a historic material. Uh, in this case, um, the way you make iron is you make a fireproof container, typically out of clay. So imagine something that the inside of which is about the size of a five-gallon pail. Maybe okay. A little bit taller, but the same diameter. Okay? Right. And, and clay about the width of your hand. You know, somewhere, oh. somewhere, the clay walls on this are somewhere in the neighborhood about seven, eight centimeters thick. Okay. Okay. So you got the cylinder of clay, right? Right. You fill it up with charcoal mm-hmm. and you pump air in the bottom of it to get the charcoal alight. Right. Once you've ignited that whole time, uh, mass of charcoal, you throw in a handful of ore and a handful of charcoal and a handful of ore and a handful of charcoal. Where does the ore come from? Well, at Lansom Meadows, there's a natural occurring primary bog ore that's found right in um, the the bog where the buildings are constructed. Which so is, I they, assume, why they chose that location? Well, it's not why they would have chosen that location, but when they cut up the big slabs of peat to make the walls for the houses, they would have lifted it up, and the ore would have been right there. Right, And, and okay. it's the same material that the, the Scandinavians were using back home. Okay. So Leif and his guys would have recognized right off what it was. Yeah, I'm interested now in... Uh, in smithing slightly what 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 advice would you have for the uh for the up and comer the new the novice somebody who wants to get into this line of work so it 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 may appear somewhat self-serving and i will apologize for that but my best advice is for the the interested individual to take a weekend program with an instructor with experience teaching beginners and there's a small cadre of us, um, uh, uh, Rob Martin uh, down in the kitchen area, uh, David Robertson from over near Walkerton, uh, yeah. Sandra Dunn out of Kitchener, um, all of which have been teaching for 20, 30 years, uh, running weekend programs. So we know what we're about or we wouldn't be able to do it for so long. Cool. And what will happen on a weekend program is you'll get started on the right foot. And I tell students they learn as much in that two days as I did in the first two years working on my own. Well, I, I can't imagine just deciding to start being a blacksmith. There's there's gear involved. There's, there is gear involved. So that that's one thing there. And sure, it's going to cost you a couple of hundred bucks to take a course. But um, in so much as uh, the equipment can be fairly expensive to start with, it's extremely durable. Hmm. And you can get by. You, you can use a rock. You know, or you or a piece of a bulldozer. I worked on a piece of railway track for the first three years because that's what I had. You know, right. and, and that all will work. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you get started on the craft, for, number one, you'll find out whether you want to do it before you spend any money. Exactly, and, and that's worth something. And um, you'll learn enough that you'll probably be able to go home and practice on your own for maybe six months, getting those skills up and tight, mm-hmm. so that now instead of it taking an hour to do something, you can do it in three heats. Then what you can do is you can go back to any one of those instructors, and maybe a different one, different mm-hmm. point of view, um, and take a second course and learn another set of skills, and then practice those up. Right. And it's that old old saw about you know skill and knowledge are not the same thing. And uh, with the iron smelting research that I've been doing, which has been an ongoing project now for twenty years, um, Wareham is actually the center for experimental archaeology into research of uh, Viking Age bloomery iron smelting for North America. That's when I'm largely being, thanks to you. Yeah, oh, it's because, entirely because of me. Because, like I, yeah. I said earlier, there's only three guys in Canada already crazy enough to do this full time. <laughs> I'm one of them, and I'm probably the craziest of the three. Yes. Certainly, I've done the most work in it. And now you said experimental archaeology. 
Right. So this is something that's changed with me. Obviously, I've always been interested in museum work and living history presentation. But um, how do we learn about the past? And one tool in that toolbox is to uh, attempt to duplicate processes, get results similar to what was done in the past. I see. And uh, if you uh, actually keep notes and <laughs> records, yes. which again you'll see on the website, um, you know you can claim that that's actual viable uh, scientific research. Oh. And I've got a number of uh, published academic papers, and I've uh, worked on projects internationally uh, in Europe and uh, in Scotland. Um, so I'm kind of the guy for that particular piece of craziness. And this you know. all started with uh, sending your uh, pics It all off started from Canada. just arrogantly just sending off a report to Parks Canada. And your brain yeah. ran with it. And, and it uh, just kept up with it. No, absolutely. As you, you know, your viewers can't really tell this, although they may be able to tell by looking at the website. You're not going to get rich doing any of this stuff. You, you, you take on these uh, endeavors because you're driven to do the work. Right. And then you figure out some way to put food on the table. Right. Uh, you, you know, career and artisan blacksmith never go in the same sentence unless <laughs> hell no is in between the, the two exactly, words. Exactly, yeah. Um, it's extremely satisfying a kind of work. Well, clearly, um, if yes, you've, uh, you've taken it to a, a different level they're, by uh, going back in time. They're uh, highly durable objects, mm -hmm. and we have... Um, you go to some place like, like Black Creek or uh, Grey Roots Museum, you'll see objects that are 200 years old that are still in use. Oh, um, sure. So you're making objects that endure through time. And, uh, you know, anybody who's listening is concerned about the environmental ramifications of coal. Um, yeah, it's, it's messy on the front end, but you make the one thing and you never make another one. Right. I see and, what and, you're saying. And you get back... What, whatever kind of impacts at the front, you get it back through that duration. You're not buying a new axe every two years. Yeah. You got one axe, you use it for the rest of your life. Um, we've come full circle. I know your life, how it started, and uh, where you're going with it. Thank you so much for coming in, Darryl. Well, I've, good to with talk to everybody out there in the world. Well, you know, I've been hearing something about the mighty South Grey News, and it's uh, all a mystery to me. I uh, need to be educated, and I understand that the mighty South Grey News can involve some mystery because you and Rob Barnett have to get your heads together. What goes well, we, on? <laughs> well, we did uh, get our heads together this week, and uh, we've we've had some nice uh, uh, feedback and conversation. It's like over the backyard fence. So uh, there's a lot of topics that we cover off, and it's really it's a nice uh, freewheeling segment. Okay, I like the sound of that. Happy New Year, Ron. Twenty twenty, great Happy vision, New Year. right? That's my twenty. I was able to get 2020 vision when I had my eyes done. Oh, yes. No, I'm a long way from that. Okay. So yes. that's why I haven't got my glasses on. Now, if I, have, if I have to read something, well, that's to get 2020 reading vision, I have to put my glasses on. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's January, and I was thinking, you know, what, what is January known for? It's a uh, resolution time, right? So, Yeah, and it's a time to change, right? Yeah, I agree. There's all kinds of uh, things going on. You know, have you heard of vegan veganuary? Veganuary. Veganuary is when people give up meat and, and animal 
food products? Uh, well, I, yeah, I hear that a lot of people are giving up meat. Um, not necessarily uh, in agreement with that concept because there's nothing better than a three-inch ribeye. Yeah, I don't think I could do it either. Um, right. I crave things like Big Macs and stuff like that. Everybody to their own wishes. I eat everything yeah. in moderation. There's another thing that I think would be hard for me to do too is uh, giving up uh, alcohol for the month. A lot of people do that in January. Okay. Well, I, I must admit in uh, on January the 1st, 1980, uh, at the stroke of midnight, I gave up smoking after mm, many, many years of smoking. Uh, so I haven't had a cigarette uh, in uh, since January the 1st, 1980. Wow. And that was the first time you'd tried? No, I, I had tried many times before. But then that was really when I said to myself, you know, cut. You know, it's only you that's going to make it, make uh, smoking stop. So my my first wife, uh, and that's another story. But uh, she and I quit that night. All right, and mm -hmm. you know, it was quite common to smoke in in those days. So yes, you're right. January the first can be very eventful. This is something the public health unit is uh, stressing right now too. But it's another thing in January that people do because January is actually uh, quit smoking month. I agree, and I agree that. Uh, but it's not to quit smoking and and uh, and take up marijuana either. Because well, that, no, that's smoking. I call that smoking as well. You do okay. So, but however, one thing I haven't seen is any tobacco uh, brownies. But I have seen some other kind of brownies. All right. Mm -hmm. So um, anyhow, that's an, another way of ingesting, right? So, but I don't smoke anymore. And I visited when I was away three cigar factories. I just love the smell. Of cigars. Yeah. I, I don't like the smell of the smoke. Yeah. But there is a, a aroma to a cigar that's very nice. Pipe smoke, too. Oh, I used to smoke pipes. You Did know. you? Oh, yeah. I started when I was 18. You know, that was, oh, you go to college, you know, you smoke a pipe and you wear you a jacket see... with, with leather patches on, oh, yeah. on, on the elbows. You know, Don't see was... too many pipe smokers these days. No, no. Actually, I did buy a pipe. Uh, my son did for me in case I ever wanted to smoke marijuana. I said that's the only way I'd ever smoke it. Uh -huh. We haven't gotten around to to that yet, so I'm not even sure I will. But I do have a pipe. Well, the health unit actually has a contest right now where you can uh, win money, win cash if you register. Uh, it's called the Break It Off Challenge. Have you heard of this? No. You can um, register on their website, and if you um, you quit for so many days, or I don't know how many it takes to to be entered for this contest but uh, you can win up to a thousand dollars i think you really? can also help somebody else stop smoking and enter to win so what i could enter because i haven't smoked for 40 years i think maybe um you're not eligible anymore oh. so you'd have to start up again and then quit. no i i, I was not gonna do that. very tempted you know to have a puff of a cigar and i said no nah, i'm not i'm not gonna do it mm -hmm. so there you are well, these are all good things that we can all try to do in January. Some of them are very hard. How about dieting? You haven't mentioned dieting. I didn't, did I? But it's also something you can do. I probably could do a little bit of that too myself. But, oh, come uh, on. You're lean, mean. <laughs> not as lean and mean as I used to be, but uh, yeah, I would like to get back to that. Okay. Um. Another thing that happens in January, January is very dark and, and cold and it's winter. and 
We uh, just passed uh, this past Monday was uh, Blue Monday. Have you ever heard of Blue Monday? Every Monday's blue, but well, go ahead. Uh, what happened on this <laughs> blue, blue Monday, Monday? is supposedly the most depressing day of the year for people. Oh, okay. And it's something that somebody made up a long time that ago. That is good. Do they have cards that you can send to your friends or something like that? Not yet, but that's maybe a good idea, but uh yeah. So, but anyways, it is a it is a dark and it can be well, a depressing it's based time for on people. the cycle of the solar cycles and things like I, could be. I don't know. I think it's just the fact that it's so dark. Okay. Yeah, well, it's the longest day of the year. Is that the is that what Blue Monday is? No. 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 Okay. Well, no. I don't know much about that solar stuff. So, Anyhow, uh, where was, what did you do on Blue Monday? Um, Wear red? I tried to just keep myself occupied. I was aware of it and uh, tried to just not sink too far into depression, I guess. Okay. And you didn't, uh, you know, so you'd given up drinking and and smoking. So what the heck could you do? Actually, I'll tell you what I did. I I looked up um, some of the more um, good news stories of, of recent events and i thought maybe that would be a way was there a lot of good news stories there are so especially in gray highlands okay um there have been a lot of announcements lately you know the developments that's that are going on um right the recently the um the elementary school in markdale got uh, ministry of education approval to proceed yeah that was great i mean you're going to buy a strip of land there so that uh, they can uh, build the school right out to the end so that they don't have to uh, tear down the old school, so they can do yeah. it simultaneously. That's a great idea. Right? Yeah, and it included uh, about six point four million dollars in funding and uh, for the school, and two another two two point one million for childcare. So these are all good things that are right. happening Absolutely. in Markdale. Yep. No, Markdale is getting ready for the the next uh, the next surge, and of course, are uh, as part of that, I guess. Um, uh, the uh, hopefully everything will go in place to have the transaction uh, to be starting the new townhouses. Yes, that's another thing that's happening. Yeah, and they're saying groundbreaking is uh, possible for this year. So this is these are good things. Yes, absolutely. All the all the services are basic basic services are in. Right? And the hospital in Markdale has been uh, has submitted stage four point one documents. Right. Which is another And they've step. applied for the building permit. So, yeah. yeah, everybody's in. It's all happening. It is. And that one was a cost of $65 million. So they're saying that they could even groundbreak this year as well. Of course, it'd be towards the end of the year. But yeah, well, that was the, kind of the plan. But, uh, but, but still, that's great. Yeah, so these are good I mean, the stories. small rural hospital is, I was, happened to visit there yesterday for some small reason. And I just, you just feel like, Really, so welcome there. Right? Mm-hmm. Even though you have to deal with a computer as you enter in today, so you have to put your health card in and uh, di- you know get all that stuff. But then, once uh, once you're in the system, it all takes care, and and you move forward. And you know you can have tests, and they have you know a lab there, so it's not like you go to a doctor and well, we have to wait for. Th- I I had a whole series of tests done yesterday. All came out great, but it was all done while I was there. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing, and that'll happen in the new hospital as well. So, um, and in a small town like Markdale, you get served uh, a little quicker than you would in a bigger oh, absolutely community. I mean, what I did yesterday would have taken three or four other days. All right, so it's mm-hmm. it's great. Another recent announcement was the Gray Transit route. 
Yeah, that's coming along, isn't it? Eh? And yeah, so they're looking for bus drivers now. Are they? Yeah. From where and, to? Uh, uh, along Highway 26 from Owen Sound to the town of Blue Mountains and right. along Highway 10 from Owen Sound down to uh, Orangeville. Really? Yeah, and they're actually actually looking at... Um, so is a company actually going to run that for the county? Uh, how? The, what's the process? I'm not sure. Who's hiring? It's the county that's hiring. I'm not sure uh, okay. if there's a separate company to look after it. but um, And they're also looking at a route along uh, Gray Road 4. Really? No, yeah. that's new. So tell me about that. Um, well, that would be, I guess, from Singhampton to Hanover, maybe. Ooh, that would be neat. But it's it's in the it's in the conceptual stage right okay. now. So they haven't announced well, that. Well, at least yet. you know. I but mean, the are, other thing that was passed at council recently was that the uh, to have a transportation committee. You know, especially for for seniors, a lot of seniors have uh, transportation issues. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean, if you can no longer, if you are no longer allowed to drive and you're in your early 90s and still fit, uh, you know, how do you get around? Okay. Yeah. So, and if you have mobility issues, another story. So that's being looked into. So a lot of great things are happening. Yeah. A lot of good things. Um, another uh, news item that maybe you, you've heard of uh, is that uh, recent uh, unemployment rates have come out and we continue to be one of the lowest rates in in all of Ontario. Well, I I think you know there's a lot of jobs. That really means that there's a lot of, a lot of jobs available, and and there's nobody uh, qualified to take those jobs. Yeah, and that's the problem with that is that uh, there aren't enough uh, people um, to hire. They're looking for hi- people to hire around here, and having so you a know hard what? Time. One of the things I mean, I always kind of believed in apprentice programs. Uh, uh, going back to when I was in industry, we used to train people and, and they didn't require any special paperwork, but, but the skill levels we had to bring up. But I was talking to my daughter yesterday and my son-in-law or my grandson rather is, is spending $9,000, but he's going to come out after a year to become a professional welder. Oh yeah. So he has to invest. All right. Yes. There's separate schools. Okay. That sounds like a good trade, though. Oh, it is. I mean, there's a real shortage of, of, of welders. Okay. Yeah. In and, fact, uh, any trade up here, I think, uh, if you want to get into a trade up here in this area, you'll never be without a job because they're always in demand. Right. Yep. And there was an article in our country homes or something about young ladies getting into becoming electricians and plumbers and, uh, well, you know, uh, uh, drywall tapers and things. So there's a lot of opportunities there for people that want to get into trades. For okay. sure, yes. Right. Um, another item I just wanted to mention that uh, Forest Ontario, I think I mentioned them in the last pet podcast. That's right. Are you planting um, any trees yet? They have an over-the-counter tree sales program Okay. Um, that uh, just anybody can apply for, and uh, but right now this is the time to do it, and their deadline uh, for applications is February the first. So what? Uh, so you go to their website, and there'll right. be an application on there, and you fill that out, uh, send it in, and uh, you could be one of the uh, the properties that they will plant trees on this year. Oh, that's neat! And then and you get a you can, a certain subsidy. Yes, uh, for that. yeah, the yeah. F- it's, managed forest. All right. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, uh, let me let me say this: It's really exciting to go back to my dad's old house up in Uxbridge, and he planted trees these uh, these little 
little pine trees there. And mm-hmm. uh, today, I mean, you know, 50 years later, I mean, they're enormous. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that the people who own the property today have a managed forest. So it's really, it's really good. Mm-hmm. We planted a couple of seed, seedlings, maybe three or four seedlings on our property, and, and that was 15 years ago, maybe, and now right. they are towering. Isn't it amazing? Over the house. It doesn't take that long. No, I've been looking out my window for 20 years, and I can't can't see the lake anymore, so i got to get trimming. Yeah. Right? You want to see that lake. That's right. Well, we pay a lot of taxes to be there. So. That's right. <laughs> But that's, so those are all the uh, the good news stories that I've come across lately. And I thought, you know, in the time of uh, January, when everybody's feeling a little down and a little blue, then these well, are some of the things. Well, it's good to stimulate that, that thinking. Okay. Yeah. And I can say, you know, after 40 years of uh, not smoking, that it was certainly a, a good move. Uh, I would say that I had erratic success with, uh, not erotic, but erratic <laughs> success with, with dieting. Okay. I'm still... I'm still 220 at one. T- I really should be ideally 195. So there's still room for improvement there. Yeah, I think I'm probably in the similar kind of weight class as you. Right. Yeah. But, you know, food is uh, uh, you should live to eat, not eat to live. And exercise. <gasps> yes. <laughs> How can I do that? Yes, it's it's hard. It's not hard to do it once in a while, but much harder to do it yeah it is well often hey ron i understand that you uh, interviewed amy kitchen this week i Can you did. tell me a little bit about what happened uh and a little bit about amy amy is someone i met a few years ago when she was involved with the thornberry farmers market right uh, she's actually one of the founders of the the market which started out in clarksburg um, but uh, she is young and smart, and she's a farmer, and she's uh, kind of taught herself. And uh, she recently went to the uh, Farmers Week in uh, right, and uh, she was one of the presenters. So she presented her little farm story, and uh, that was on Eco Day. And she brought uh, some news from from that week. It's a seven day long conference. Yeah, and, I saw that. Uh, wow. They have speakers from all over, not only the province, but all over the world, really. And uh, it's been going on for over 50 years now. And right. uh, it's quite a big thing. But not being a farmer myself, I, I needed to know more about it. So she was there to... I remember uh, going there as uh, they had Politicians Day or something like that. So. Oh, yes, yes. Well, you would have a, gone to all of those things, yeah. I did at one time, yeah. And it was always interesting. But uh, let's say this: I, not being a farmer, uh, I you know I didn't appreciate all of the nuances. But uh. well, she's an organic farmer, so she um, she does all kinds of things. She raises uh, animals, and uh, she does uh, flowers and oh okay and produce, and she does other farmers' markets, and she has her own farm store. So there's all kinds of stuff that she's into, and uh, she does farm gate sales. Then yeah, okay, yeah. great. Well, I'll look forward to listening to that interview, Ron. I am here with Amy Kitchen, and she's a local farmer in Grey Highlands. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. Um, Maybe tell us a little bit about your side road farm. Where it is. Um, Yeah, my husband, Patrick, and I have side road farm. Um, We are just south, uh, south of Walters Falls. And uh, it's a market garden. 
we grow certified organic vegetables at our farm and um, we also grow cut flowers and have pasture raised chicken. And you have a, a farm store on your property too. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Is have, that available uh, all year round? Yeah, we have, um, we just opened in 2018, we opened the side road farm store and it's open three days a week, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, year round. So how long have you been uh, farming? I started farming in 2009 in BC. So what was that? 11 so, years ago? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, you came from BC, so you're not uh, originally from this area. No, no, I'm not. And what I'm, made you choose Grey Highlands? Uh, well, it's a little convoluted, but um, the short story of it is that my husband Patrick and I were farming in, in BC in and around Vancouver in this beautiful valley called uh, the Fraser Valley. And um, as you know, the prices of farmland in and around that area are fairly astronomical. So as we were just starting out, we were leasing our farm from a large commercial poultry operation and uh, starting to want to um, look at a farm of our own and just felt like we really couldn't afford to stay there. So in 2013, we made a big leap and we drove across the country and settled here, which is where Patrick's family had grown up. Uh, Patrick grew up coming up to this area, Beaver Valley, to do skiing on the weekends. And they had a recreational property. They still have it actually in Heathcote. And so that's what drew us to the area. That's great. So have you have you enjoyed it over here? Yeah, it's, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've learned um, to love winter which that, that was the biggest change for me coming from Vancouver Island, where if it snows, it, uh, it's gone by 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, well, I think the more you're here, the more you'll hate winter. But <laughs> I don't that's know. People seem pretty happy that the snow's back today. Yeah. I got to say, it's beautiful out there. Um, and uh, the farming here is actually very different from where we started farming. So that was a bit of a learning curve. But we, I think we've, um, you know, six years into farming in Gray County, Ontario, I think we've got a hit the hang of our soil and the different growing zone and, and whatnot. And, and things are starting to feel a lot easier for us. So that's, it's, we feel like we've settled in. And I know you from uh, your involvement with the Thornberry farmers market. That's right. Yeah. Um, is there anywhere else that you uh, sell your wares? Yeah, we, um, we sell at the Collingwood um, summer farmers market, as well as the Collingwood winter farmers market, um, which happens from October into February. So that's where we're, you can find us right now on Saturday mornings there between 10 and one. And where's uh, the Collingwood? It's, it's at the Trinity United Church, um, which is 140 Maple Street in Collingwood in the gymnasium there. So it's an indoor market, nice and warm and cozy on those snowy mornings. And if not there, I guess you're you're at the farm store on your property. Yeah, you can come to the farm store um, in Walters Falls. It's a lovely drive um, from various locations in the Grey Highlands. Um, and then we also do something called a CSA program, which is it's an acronym that stands for Community Supported Agriculture. It's basically like a harvest box program. So you can prepay for your vegetables and we um, pack you up a box every week or every second week. And we do a, both a summer and a winter program for that, too. That's great. I know from the Thornbury market, which you're not currently doing, that uh, your stuff is always excellent. 
No, thanks. Now, you also were recently at the Grey Bruce Farmers Week, which is a seven-day conference that's held in Elmwood. That's right, yeah. And you were one of the presenters there, I understand. Yes. Um, I was uh, lucky enough to be asked to present on Eco Day, which is one of the seven um, separate days of the Grey Bruce Farmers Week. And I did a presentation on um, how we tell our farm story on social media, which is something that our farm um, focuses on and I guess uh, has been really valuable to our operation. So how did that go over? Did, did that, was that well attended? Yeah, it was um, surprisingly well attended. Um, the weather, I think, for this conference is always a, a bit of a concern. It's touch and mm-hmm. go. They've lucked out this time and had six days of beautiful weather. Unfortunately, the day that I was going, which was Eco Day, um, there was this snow squall that sat over top of Elmwood and it was pretty hairy getting in. Um, so I think it was one of the lighter days in terms of attendance. But but when I was looking out at the audience, the seats seemed pretty much full. So that was a nice feeling. And then they also um, offered live streaming this year. You could live stream the entire seven-day conference and see all the presentations um, from your home, which I think is pretty neat. So if nobody attended or or wasn't able to, they can still look at the entire conference online? Um, Yeah, absolutely. I think you can go go online to the Grey Bruce Farmers Week website and um, pick and choose the presentations that you'd like to watch and download them from there. So attendance overall was pretty good for the full week. Yeah. Um, the organizers said they had 1,250 attendees, which is just awesome. Yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> how many years has this been running now? Let's see. Um, longer than I've been around on Earth. Uh, I think next year is the 55th annual conference. So this would have been year 54. What are the many different days of the conference? Ah, right. Um, so it's essentially um, a seven-day conference, which each day is its own mini conference, um, and the different commodities are uh, the focus of each day. So there's beef, dairy, goat, sheep, horse, eco day, and crops day um, over the seven days. So it's pretty. Uh, there's a huge breadth of topics that's being presented. At the con- at the full conference, were you at, able to attend any of those days, or did you just show up on them? Um, I ca- I went to the full eco day, um, which is the the day that really resonates with our farm, so it makes sense for us to to attend that day. And um, yeah, I listened to everything from um, an expert on chicken brooding who taught us how to brood uh, our chicks better, um, which is really interesting because we of course have broiler chickens that we raise on pasture. So that was relevant. And, um, I listened to eco day had a great panel discussion on no till vegetable gardening, um, which is a very timely topic. This idea of, of not tilling your, your market garden is relatively new. And we were lucky enough to have four, um, experts who, are in Gray County who've adopted these practices on their farm came and told their story about what they're doing and showed us various techniques. So I, I thought that that was really interesting. And um, these are farmers and experts from all over the province, aren't they? Yeah, in some cases. Um, 
for sure, I think they're bringing in even international folks to the conference. The the four producers who spoke about the no-till um, are pretty are local to this area, so they're all Gray County farmers, um, which is I think representative of the fact that we have a lot of great small market gardening operations in our county. Mm-hmm. So on the topic of uh, social media and your own farm story, are there any tips that you can share with us right now about how to promote your farm to the community? Yeah. Um, I think I'd start off by saying that um, it's it's work. It's another thing that us farmers um choose to do on top of our already busy plates, but our farm has found it very valuable to be out there on social media. We use um, Instagram and Facebook quite a bit um, to tell our story online. And um, this, I'm not a social media expert by any means, but I've just sort of through the years of using it, I've found out what works for us and what doesn't. Um, it, all in an effort to sort of cultivate a, a community around our farm that that engages with what we're doing on a day-to-day basis and, and really cares about the events that happen on our farm and, and what we're doing and about our family. Um, and I have done that, I think mostly by taking really lovely pictures, um, which I take myself on my iPhone. Um, and, uh, I, I sort of in in my talk at the conference, I went through and sort of had a whole bunch of tips about how to take nice photos if you're not a professional photographer. Um, but my main tip there is just to take a lot of photos mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and take them in the morning and the evening uh, when the light is really nice and um, be picky about what you're posting. And from there, um, really focusing in on what your audience is interested in. So. Um, for us, it's, uh, things like our livestock. Um, they want to see pictures of our, our flower field in full bloom. Um, they want to hear about what, what products we have to offer, um, and where we're going to be and that sort of thing. Um, so always thinking about your audience and who you're posting to and, and what you're trying to achieve with social media. Is it, you know, some people use it for their own personal uses, um, which I've sort of strayed away from. I use it mostly for, for promoting Side Road Farm. And um, because I'm doing that, I'll, I will focus only on our farm when I'm posting on social media. So while you're, 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 your business is basically, well, it's very seasonal, but even though you're open during the winter, is it harder to do this over the winter time? It's, well, actually, not to correct you, but I'm going to correct you. We farm 12 months a year, so we're not seasonal at all. Like oh, okay. we've got, we have unheated hoop houses that we're growing in and we're harvesting 12 months a year. Winter is very much a season for us. Like we have in the fall, we pull in a bunch of storage vegetables and we sell those all winter. So things never really stop. Um, and the, the fun thing about um, telling your story when you're a farmer is that the material is really interesting and it's so readily available. Like we have, we work outside, we witness beautiful scenery. Um, we have really cute animals on our farm. And we're producing high quality food that people really want and they, they want to see it. And so f- that, uh, for that, no, I don't find it hard to do the social media in the winter at all. It's sort of endless. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I probably post too much. No, too much probably content. not. Yeah. You can never post too much. No, no. Regu- posting regularly is important. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that was one of my tips for sure. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, what you do with your own farm on social media that can be translated to other businesses in, in the area too. Um, probably. Yeah, probably. I think there's, um, as you, as you get more experience in it, you sort of pick up on what works and what doesn't work. And that's sort of what I tried to focus on in my talk, um, which if people are interested, they can certainly go and download that from the Grapers Farmers Week. Uh, if you want to get sort of the full range of tips, it was a 40 minute presentation on, on what we do on our farm mm-hmm. and what's worked for us. Was there anything else that impressed you from Farmers Week? Well, I think I want to talk about um, how amazing it is that we have an office like Gray Agricultural Services in our area, which is fairly unique to Gray County. They are not supported by government at all, um, but they are doing a great service to the agricultural community just by operating and acting as an extension agent. And their offices are in the Gray County building and they're Sound? they're in Markdale. Oh, they're in Markdale. Yeah, they're in Markdale, um, oh, right behind the, uh, the Gray Gables in the municipal building. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, and you can walk in. Um, they're there Monday to Friday. They have a whole range of information there about the different programs, workshops. And I guess it's important to note that Ray Robertson is the executive director of the Ag Services. Mm-hmm. And he chaired the federal all candidates meeting That's in right. Gray Highlands. That's right. You run your farm with your whole family. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Meaning my husband and I work together. Um, and every your day. husband is Pat. And His name's Patrick. Yeah. Your two children. I have two kids, uh, Wyatt, who's five, and Nora, who is one. Um, little baby. She's actually at her second day of preschool ever today. So that's why I was able to come here and talk to you. It's not uh, not always easy to get away from the farm with two little kids running around. But we wouldn't have it any other way. Well, they're pr- uh, prospective farmers themselves, I suppose. Yeah, I try not to push them into it. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they have a pretty awesome life. I hope. Hopefully they'll want to want to stay farming. But if not, that's OK. They can do whatever they want. <laughs> Well, by all accounts that I've heard, your farm is doing extremely well and uh, your store has been well received in the community. Yeah. Yeah, it has been. Um, We were pretty blown away opening a store in the middle of nowhere, um, in the middle of everywhere, if you look at the map, um, that people make the drive out there to, to pick up produce. I think it provides a pretty interesting experience for folks being able to drive up onto the farm um, and maybe even run into the farmers who are growing their food and and do their grocery shopping that way. Yeah, it's important for people these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that I think they so. Know where their food is coming from. They actually can meet the people who produce it yeah. for them. Yeah. Do you have a lot of subscribers to your uh, box program? Um, yeah, the box programs have been very popular. Um, in the summer, we have a hundred person member CSA. Um, and then, then the winter, we, we have it a little tighter. There's 50 people and the, the winter programs full. It, it usually fills up in 24 hours when we open the registration up. Um, so huge demand there for that. And the summer program, we're actually taking registrations for that right now um, on our website. And last I checked, there's 20 spots left. So I imagine they're going to go quite quickly. 
Um, if you're interested, you can go online to our website to find out more information. And your website is? Uh, sideroadfarm.com. And if they want to follow you on social media, your Side Road Farm? Yes. Yeah. Side Road Farm on Instagram and on Facebook. So when we're all finished here, all of your links will appear in the show notes. Oh, that's really neat. Great. Yeah. Now we've got uh, uh, a very interesting event coming up. There hasn't been a date attached to it, Stuart, uh, but uh, your colleague and friend, uh, Rob Barnett, is very much part of this, and that is Gray County Reads. Right. And uh, I'm going to be moderating in the museum, at a date still to be determined, uh, a panel that will be made up of the five people who have championed the five finalists. Okay. Uh, as you know, uh, the librarians in our region uh, recommend quite a number of books which then are whittled down to the top five right and those five books will be championed and they're being championed by a an eclectic group of people from a very prominent owen sound librarian uh, to a journalist to a united church minister so uh, i look forward to meeting those people uh, who will sit beside me uh, and uh, we will find out why they they took on championing a particular book, uh, and uh, then we'll learn on that very day who the grand winner is. Okay, so that will be also featured on the Cultural Channel. Uh, it's going to be recorded and uh, sound uh, as well being done, uh, as, you know, from uh, uh, Leaking Ambient Studios are doing the sound. Yes, I think it's only right that there be a particular uh, finale. Right. You know, uh, we we have a great many readers in this region. We have several book clubs. In one book club, I understand from a neighbor of mine, uh, discusses all their books in French. Uh-huh. So we have some very heavyweight readers, people who appreciate literature, and hopefully they'll come out for our event. Look forward to it. Well, Barry, it's been nice having you here this week in Studio A, and it's uh, it's great to, you know what, I, I if I could take a, an hour to tell people about your background, uh, it would be great. But, uh, you know, uh, you've been behind a microphone as a professional. I'm just a rank amateur, but uh, I just really enjoy, uh, you know, having conversation, especially with, with you and all your mighty background, talking about mighty stories. So, uh, Barry, it's... Uh, I look forward to a lot of things happening in 2020 and in the, I know you're even planning into 2021. So you're, if, if there was a way to, uh, uh, say that, uh, you know, the award you received last year from the, from the mayor at the mayor's, uh, uh, levy, uh, you know, it's an achievement award, but you certainly deserve it. And you're, you know, I don't know whether you're, uh, you should have a medal next, okay? So for thank you for bringing culture uh, to Grey Highlands. Well, that's very kind of you. And I'm just going to say that I was so pleased this year uh, when uh, people who've been so much part of the community as the McGee's, right. you know, Tom and Joan, uh, received that same recognition. I think they should have had the first recognition because they've been so much a part of this area. Uh, but having said that, it's a real thrill, uh, continually a thrill for Jane and myself to participate in Grey Highlands, and we continue to do so. Well, thank you for doing that. I appreciate all the effort that uh, you and Jane and the friends are actually bringing to uh, to our community. And I guess we can say to uh, your listeners, Stuart, uh, that people should stay tuned because 2021 is a big year for our lady from Grey, Agnes McPhail.
Thank you, Barry. You've been listening to episode nine of In Grey Highlands This Week for Thursday, 20th of February, 2020. A current affairs podcast for and about the municipality of Grey Highlands in Ontario, Canada. Our hosts are Stuart Halliday and Paul McQueen. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to you favoring us with a response by email, feedback at ingreyhighlandsthisweek.ca or a call to our voicemail at 519-900-8905. Please visit ingreyhighlandsthisweek.ca to view the show notes, leave a comment, and listen to extended material. Our scores are skillfully composed and generously provided by Al Halliday of Arkham Dispatch and Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Thanks to our guests, Michelle Harris, Director of Economic and Community Development for the Municipality of Grey Highlands, Daryl Markovitz of the Wareham Forge, and Amy Kitchen of Side Road Farms. And finally, special thanks to the inimitable Barry Penhale for sitting in as co-host for a busy Paul McQueen. Ron Barnett produces our SouthGreyNews.ca segment, and Jeff Bowes produces our Arts and Culture segment. The show is produced by Tim Riley at Leaking Ambient Studio in Flesherton. In Grey Highlands This Week is produced in association with the Grey Highlands Chamber of Commerce and our friends at SouthGreyNews.ca and is copyright under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 International License. World.